you don't have to worry about it anymore. You're not no, running again. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And uh, there, what it looks like, um, from what I can tell, given that Elections BC is renting space uh, all across the province, that we may end up uh, having an earlier election. Ooh, well, that's going to be one of my first questions, so we'll get into that. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a member of the Order of British Columbia, a recipient of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal, and a winner of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize for his role as a lead author in the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate with a group that included former U.S. Vice President Al Gore. He has authored and co-authored over 200 peer-reviewed papers in climate, meteorology, oceanography, earth science, policy, education, and anthropology journals. He was the Canada Research Chair in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria, where he worked for 25 years. And to top it all off, he plays a mean game of Pokemon Go. (laughs) He is the member of the Legislative Assembly for Oak Bay Gordon Head since 2013. And from December 2015 to January 2020, he was the leader of the Green Party of British Columbia he is Dr. Andrew Weaver. Dr. Weaver, how are you, sir? Oh, very well. What a pleasure to be on your show, and thank you for that very kind introduction. I should say, uh, the mean part is not so much Pokemon Go, it's paintball. I'm an avid <laughs> paintballer as well, and I think there's a little more aggression in paintball than Pokemon. <laughs> Good to know. I didn't read that about you, but no, uh, now I'm not well kept secret. <laughs> been doing it with my son since he was about 10 years old, and we still go. He's 20-something now, 22. We still go. We were there a couple of weeks ago. Go. still go every now and again it's, it's really good exercise good fun Come yeah outdoors. yeah and, and i was gonna say it sounds like a covid friendly activity right now well it is because you're masked up uh we have our own gear too which is doubly good but you're masked <laughs> up you're outside everybody's masked up and you have face protection so it's a uh, covid friendly outdoors good exercise uh good fun and it's good clean fun i love that i, I appreciate your time thank you for joining me via the magic of zoom Dr. Weaver, almost a year ago, you were diagnosed with labyrinthitis, and in January, you disclosed that your family was also facing health challenges as well. How is your health? How are you? How is your family? So after uh, the initial diagnosis was labyrinthitis, it turned out I had vestibular neuritis, which is very similar. Okay. In, in, it's, uh, the labyrinth nerve was the one that affects your hearing. Uh, that turned out not to have been destroyed. My, the nerve that connects my inner ear and my vestibular system balance was basically killed by a virus. Wow. I don't know what it was. Uh, so I spent, uh, my two eyes were out of sync. So I saw double vision. I huh. It was terrible. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. You get hit like a ton of bricks. A year later, I'm still dizzy. Uh, it's the dizziness takes time. You have to. Your body has to rebuild that nerve, and um, you know sometimes it never gets better. But it's it's much better than it was. I still get you know if I get congested, I get dizzy. If I get allergies, I get dizzy. And I'm looking forward. 
uh, to my ear, nose, and throat specialist appointment coming up uh, next week, actually. So that's been a, a year in the making and uh, looking forward to that. Um, my health situation is much better. And we're, you know, my family has other health issues in my family that I, I are very personal and private. So I prefer not to discuss them. But we're in, in a journey and pathway. My health mm-hmm. is is good. I lost 30 pounds in the last year, which is awesome. <laughs> My blood pressure has, has now normal. It was way too high. Stress levels are way down, uh, apart from health issues. But uh, so doing good, doing well. Well, I wish you and your family comfort and happiness. And I hope that despite all of the challenges of the last year so far, you were able to achieve that work-life balance that you sought through the rest of your term here. I would say that it, it was very, very difficult for the first three years uh, of being an MLA. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you could imagine uh, that there are 87 MLAs, there were 41 BC NDP, 43 BC Liberal, and three Greens. Mm-hmm. And, and then the speaker went from the BC Liberals. So we held the balance of power, and there was three of us, only one of whom had any experience in the legislature. Mm-hmm. With staff who were very young, who this was their very first job in all cases of the staff that were there. The party staff is a new and growing organization. Every time any issue occurred in any file anywhere in the province, they came to me sure. as, as the holder of the balance of power. It, you know, poor old Judy, who was my, um, she's now my um, chief of staff, was uh, running the constit office, and, and, and hence the office was handling the email because that's where the MLA email goes. It was just overwhelming, mm-hmm. and we have seen a, a rather dramatic decline in that. And it's, you know, my term's coming to an end, but when it comes to an end, and uh, did what I wanted to do, I look forward to a quieter life, that's for sure. Your term is coming to an end, but it might actually come to an early end because there's a lot of rumors floating around. So I have to ask you, what are the chances of a fall election or maybe a spring 2021 provincial election? That's, you know, it's, it's really interesting you ask that. Uh, there's a couple of indicators on that. Um, probably the best indicator is that Elections BC has, uh, there's evidence published in various um, uh, newspapers, etc., have rented space in ridings all across the province. Now, <laughs> Elections BC wouldn't have rented space if they didn't think there was a chance of an election. Another interesting thing is I, I received in my mailbox a campaign flyer for the Liberal candidate running in the riding of Oak Bay, Gordon Head, who suggests to me that the Liberals think that there might be an election sooner than later. <laughs> and uh, But also, you know, it's a very interesting time. Um, the election is set for October 2021. Uh, government is in a very, very unique period of British Columbia's history. Mm-hmm. Government uh, has an awful lot to deal with. And I suspect that they would prefer to move forward in the economic recovery plan, plan mm-hmm. having to not deal with a minority parliament, wherein uh, one or two MLAs can actually hold all the decision-making process for a government. And in particular, I know that there was an issue that if I were government, I would have been quite concerned with. And that issue was an amendment that was brought forward to a COVID recovery bill for which advance notice had not been given. 
to mm. the finance minister. And I know that because the finance minister told me. That would be very, very troubling. It was a viola- It would have been viewed as a violation of the confident- confidence in supply agreement, mm. um, where there's no surprise clause there. And uh, were such a, uh, an amendment brought on the floor without advance notice, it's, it's something that, particularly in a COVID recovery bill, it's something that government really will have to struggle with moving forward. And to what extent, you know, they will say enough is enough. That's their decision. Mm-hmm. It's not my decision. I thoroughly enjoyed working in a collaborative fashion with government. I, I will say that I couldn't run against John Horgan right now. We've become pretty good friends. The confrontational nature of politics is, is something that I don't actually like. I, I like right. to... Um, we use an express get stuff done uh typically replace the word stuff with something else but it's uh we like to get stuff done both my uh judy my chief staff and i and and when you get stuff done you have to you know bring your ideas to the table listen to other people's ideas and move forward that's what i like i don't like criticizing for the sake of it i like to actually get work done and that's i've really enjoyed that working with uh government in that regard over the last uh three years so it sounds like you're saying there is a high chance that there's going to be an election before october 2021 don't have a crystal ball in front of me and any decision for an election would be it could be called at any time by government mm-hmm. um you know we did in the confidence and supply agreement it does say that uh you know the government wouldn't just randomly call an election however you know if you start to tit for tat on that government could point to things that you know the greens did that may not have been they might argue that okay weaver was leader of the greens and we signed it with him and he's not sure now. <laughs> and then there's counter arguments to that there's all and this is where the political narrative will put out if a decision is made mm-hmm. um but but it's ultimately the ndp decision there has to be a by-election um in surrey white rock uh, tracy reddy's recently announced that mm-hmm. she is stepping down to take up the ceo of science venture i'm very envious actually that's a, sounds like a really fun job because <laughs> <laughs> i i'm uh, that would be you know a dream position right but but uh but so so she's uh she's moving in to, to do that and so there'll be a by-election the question will be then you know if we're going to have a by-election uh, do we really want an election or not? And, and, and who knows? What, who knows? We'll, we'll see. So, you know, I could see a case that governments might want to make about not having to deal with the dysfunction that can arise. It hasn't arisen, I would say, in the last three years. I think if you mm-hmm. talk to the premier and you talk to the finance minister and the attorney general and the environment minister that I work with most closely... It worked, you know, speculation tax, for example. It's not something Mm -hmm. that I would have done, not something that the Green Party would have done. It's something that we agreed on a shared values. And it Mm -hmm. was incredibly difficult to negotiate a position where, okay, it's meeting, it's, it's razor sharp and focused. Not everyone will be happy. But it did what it was supposed to be done. You know, our position at the time was that we would have put a ban on foreign purchasing of property uh, much like uh, as occurred in New Zealand and Australia mm-hmm. uh, to mirror with, and other European nations, um, uh, Asian nations as well, we would have followed that lead. But the government chose something different and we came up with solutions. Another example, incredibly time consuming, this was work with Harry Baines and his staff, is, and I don't know that historically there has ever been a case where labor code legislation was unanimously supported by every single member in the House. That required, I mean, the, uh, you can imagine every single union in the province 
came to me with their issues and was pressuring and lobbying with concerns and I <laughs> meetings. But we were able, or rather, um, I was able to broker a deal with the NDP, the Liberals, and the Greens, so that we improved the labor standards, both employment standards and the labor code. And mm-hmm. every single member in the House voted for it. Like that to me was, you know, I'm very proud of Clean BC, which was a climate plan, which was, again, extensive negotiations and collaboration. But I'm very proud of that one, the labor code one, because that is something that I had no experience with. Uh, well, I shouldn't say no experience. I was a, the, a, our faculty association president, but I had <laughs> very little experience. In, and I learned a lot and I enjoyed working with the minister and the staff. And, and I think we got to a good place. So pretty functional legislature overall pre-pandemic, but there is an argument to be made to have a proper majority government, you're saying? I I think we are not a proportional rep. We do not have proportional representation in this province. And Mm -hmm. um, that's unfortunate, but we don't. And, you know, why it's unfortunate, there would be many more parties and you could actually, you know, it'd be be less in the power of just two people or one person. Um, Yeah, there is a strong case that can be made. And and, and I, 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 I don't think the electorate would fault government if they did that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think the electorate realizes that this is a, a, an extraordinary time. And um, the government needs to be able to pivot on a dime. Yeah, I, I was quite disappointed, I'll be honest, with um, the BC Greens for bringing that amendment forward, which in essence hamstrung government to recall parliament if they wanted to change some financial obligations for accountability. I'm not so sure that that is accountability when there are two or three people uh, who don't have the extensive civil service, who don't have the resources that government has, who ultimately can actually hold any decision from moving forward. I don't know that that is accountability. I think that was uh, inappropriate at the time. And I, I think the public ultimately would see that that was not an appropriate thing to do at the time. It is. It was power grabbing, masked as accountability, and and I, I was. I will be honest. I was disappointed in that. I would have supported. Uh, I voted against the amendment. Uh, I, I wasn't there at that particular vote because of the um, the Zoom system, and it was in committee stage. Mm-hmm. Looking ahead, the BC Greens will be announcing your official successor on September fourteenth. You said that you left the BC Greens caucus in January because your presence could hinder independence and you wanted to separate yourself and let another generation lead. You specifically mentioned the youth activists in passing the torch. Can you explain to me this change within the BC Green Party? So, uh, yeah, so what, if there's, a, there's actually a superb article that was written by Mike Smith in the province. I did, uh, I wanted to, to, I gave him an exclusive on, on terms of my rationale. And the reason why I did that is this was a very difficult time for my family because, you know, a member of my family was going under very serious health issues. And I, mm-hmm. I just didn't want to be doing media stuff left, right, and center. And, and if, if one goes to the article there, one of the, one of the key aspects there is our caucus was made up of three very different people. Um, I, I have a, a background in science, very much focused on evidence-based decision-making, very much focused on fiscal responsibility, very, very centrist. And, and, and some of the positions of my two colleagues were, were, and this is actually healthy in democracy, they were quite much more activist much more, you know, we, we want to protest this or stop this. And, 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 and that's fine. That's actually really healthy to have those discussions. However, the discussions 
to develop this, the resulting policy take a ton of work, a ton of time, a ton of emotional um, investment. And I simply did not have the energy to be to be doing all that. And, and you know, I knew that Sonia was going to be running for leader. And I felt that this if she wants to write for leader, she needs to be able to put her vision forward. If I'm mm-hmm. there, you know, saying, oh, no, you know, this is not consistent with what we did here. And the it's just it wouldn't be viewed as appropriate. And this is what leaders do. Leaders mm-hmm. need to step aside and let others move forward. I ran for politics because I believe that British Columbia lost its way on climate policy. Uh, I ran to get climate policy back on the table. I was very, very proud when Clean BC was announced in December, I think it was December the 3rd, 2018. And then in October of 2019, George Heyman, the Minister of Environment and I, um, both received a national award for this uh, from the Delphi group called Clean 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I made the announcement shortly after that award that now it's time for me to move aside I've, my work is done. Yeah. I said I wasn't announcing because I, I also believe firmly that people go into politics for a reason and they should not consider politics a career path mm-hmm. because you have to, and you see it in the legislature and I've seen it so often, is you get people starting to worry more about getting reelected than mm-hmm. doing what is right. I, yeah. When I was in government, I never I mean, I obviously, when I ran again, I wanted to get reelected or I wouldn't have run. <laughs> but I didn't make decisions based on reelection. Like, if I cared about that, I would have, uh, you know, I would have voted against the spec tax. I would have, um, you know, not worked collaboratively. I would have tried to mm-hmm. position everything as an opportunity, try to look for a gotcha moment. I just, I'm not into that. I'm into getting stuff done. And I'm very proud of the work that I was able to accomplish with uh, the BC NDP government. I'm very grateful to the staff I worked with, and in particular, uh, my chief of staff now, Judy Feinstein. And, and, um, but, but there's been some great staff I've worked with, and we were able to get a lot done. I don't need to be there anymore. And yeah. frankly, I think there's a lot of other people in the legislature who shouldn't be there anymore either, because they've been there <laughs> far too long. Do you want to name some names? I'm not naming names. I'll let the election, I'll let the election make that determination. I have to um, ask you, of course. Well, of course you do. And then, of course, I have to say, uh, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> Ideologically, how do you view your former colleagues in caucus? Sonia Furstenau and Adam Olson. Do they represent the more radical left? Uh, I don't want to get into... Uh, again, I, my opinions on this are, are not really relevant. I think the, they, they have to... But they are because you worked with them, right? Like, you do have an opinion in terms of sitting in caucus and going through ideas as a party. So, so I, I mean, I, I, Sonia Furstenau is an extraordinarily bright uh, woman, and she's, she has a, a, a sense of what she wants to accomplish. Um, at times, we, we, we disagree at times we did agree. Adam Olson is is a very ambitious, passionate young man who's a uh, well, young man. He's much younger than me, but he's not that young. <laughs> and, and he's he's very passionate about indigenous issues, right? So mm-hmm. so Sonia came to politics um, because of well, the issue. Uh, I worked very closely with her when she was the area director for Shawnigan Lake and was able to mm-hmm. work with her to bring this issue to the, the environment minister to have that permit revoked for that lake before she got elected. But it was after that uh, we decided, you know, she decided she would seek election. And she came there as, as um, to, to, to try to bring a, 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 a community-based approach to, to 
resource development. Uh, and so that, mm-hmm. that would be her thing. Adam, um, Adam's very passionate about Indigenous issues, as, as you would expect. So, so I, I don't know that we, you know, we're, just, we're three very different people who were brought together in a, in a unique circumstance and did an awful lot of good stuff in the yeah. last three years. Um, the question then is for the members of the BC Green Party, but more importantly, anyone in British Columbia who can sign up to vote for the leader mm-hmm. to determine what they want for the next election. Uh, and, I, you know, of course, there'll be some Machiavellian people choosing to vote for a particular leader because they want the party, not that leader to win because they hate the party. But, mo- <laughs> but most people will actually vote for who they want. Sure. And, and, and so there are, I would say that there's two, I mean, I've looked at the at the platforms. There are two very different visions emerging. Um one is a vision that Sonia's putting forward, and the other is a vision that both Cam and, 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 and Kim are putting forward. They're sort of very different visions. And, you know, I, I will let the others decide which vision they want. I think there's room, you know, in, in proportional representation places around the world. It's very common to have two green parties. Mm-hmm. One would be a green party um, that would be more of a left green party, and one would be a green party that would be a more of a centrist one. So, uh, you know, my approach to all environmental issues has always been through the lens of every environmental challenge should be viewed as an opportunity for innovation and creativity that Mm -hmm. allows us to deal with that challenge. Others view environmental challenges as something to protest and to stop. But again, my background is science. And as a scientist, I've always told my students, it is very easy to hurl abuse at something or to criticize someone's research and say why you don't like it. But it's far more difficult to say what you would do instead or how you would fix it. And so I believe in the latter first and foremost. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in the, I don't believe criticism for the sake of it is very good. And I, I would suggest that there are some examples of that that I think the Greens need to work on. For example, forest policy. Um, the Greens right now has spent an awful lot of time complaining about logging of old growth forestry. I agree. We cannot continue to log our old growth. And I was as outspoken as my two former colleagues are now. But in my view, what you have to do is if you're going to say stop lo- old growth logging, great, because we have to preserve that biodiversity. We, we have to preserve it for uh, uh, species migration during climate change. Mm-hmm. However, what you have to recognize is that you can't just stop logging. We must realize that one of British Columbia's strategic assets is forestry. That access to fiber is fundamental to our future pathway. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how do we do it in a sustainable manner? How do we deal with the archaic timber lot licensing system? How do we go to a more, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, more value added? How do we help existing mills retool so they can actually process second growth and other growth? How do we, how do, these are the kind of issues that you must, in order to, to, to bring people to behind you, you have to articulate in a manner that is, is, is positive and forthright. Isn't that one of the key political challenges facing the Green Party, both the BC Greens and the Federal Greens, is that beyond a lens of climate action, the public isn't really certain whether you're left-wing or centrist. And on Twitter as well, you confirmed that under your leadership, the BC Greens were more centrist and slightly more fiscally conservative, but ultimately the party became a party to represent the more radical left. Has that been part of the problem with the BC Greens and the Federal Greens, that beyond tackling climate change, the public isn't entirely sure what the Green Party stands for? 
So, so I, first off, I will say that um, Federal Greens and Provincial Greens are very different parties. When I ran with the BC Greens, mm-hmm. I was inspired by Jane Sturck. Um, I had a lot of time for Jane Sturck. She was the leader who approached me a number of times, and I finally agreed. She came from a we through that we 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 see the world through very similar lenses in terms of fiscal responsibility, mm-hmm. social responsibility, and environmental responsibility. Thinking about, I mean, you could even like what I don't get is you know when you look at how the conservative party has emerged the first seven letters of conservative what are they conserve right yeah i mean this is this is now somehow it's become this you know if you're not someone like trump you're not conservative so this social conservative that that i don't know is that foreign to me so i so i Mm -hmm. i would say that fiscal most people are fiscally conservative because when you live your lives in a way that you know most people not everybody, but most people don't go out and buy a car if they have no money to pay for a car. You know, they could take a loan, sure, but they know they have to make the payments. Most people um, don't get a loan from the bank unless they have the ability to pay it back. So I think it's, you know, most of us conduct ourselves in a manner that is responsible fiscally. Um, I think most people are environmentally um, aware. Most people care about the environment. You know, you've got to live mm-hmm. in a place and you want to preserve the place you live. And some of the most, um, the, some of the most environmental of all folk are those who live in rural parts of our province because it is their backyard. Mm-hmm. But the, they typically vote for conservative governments, which are not in, in, in recent, not I'd say recent, not historically. Mm-hmm. You know, Brian Mulroney, for example, would be has been viewed by many as probably the most environmentally friendly um, Prime Minister of Canada has ever had, and he was a conservative. And he was there, of course, during the signing of the acid rain uh, agreement. He was leading internationally during the when climate change and the UNFCC started getting going. He he was really a visionary and leader in this regard, mm-hmm. and he was a conservative. What happens with new parties, and this is what people have to be careful with, is there are a lot of people who like to shout at the clouds They're just because they are protest people. Sure. <clears throat> I, I spent um, the last uh, a good number of years trying to say, okay, no, we're trying to put forward balanced public policy. If you want to shout at the clouds, go shout somewhere else. We'll listen to you, but you're only one stakeholder. Um, a, a lot of the, the BC NDP historically had had a lot of these activists. Um, uh, when I say, I mean, I, I mean that with respect. You know, I just have this vision of Homer Simpson's grandfather, right? So, <laughs> father who, you know, that, that, that sure. But, but it's critical in civil discourse to have people who protest, demonstrate, and so forth. But you cannot govern through activism. Because activists are one stakeholder of many. There are business stakeholders. There are, you know, single mom stakeholders. There are single mm-hmm. dad stakeholders. There are, there are entrepreneur stakeholders. There are student stakeholders. There are youth stakeholders. All these different stakeholders, of which one is, 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 only, is, 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 is perhaps the activist community in that particular area of your concern. Now, what happened is some of them have been quite disappointed in the NDP um, because of the decision on Site C, which frankly um, was a decision that they'll have to to explain because, you know, I'm having a rather large, I told you so moment on this. Um, It was never about, for me, the issue of Site C was it was fiscally irresponsible to move that way because the price of renewables had dropped down and our existing existing reservoirs could have been used very efficiently as as batteries to, to level the load. That's, I mean... That's exactly what it's turning out to be. But um, there's some disappointment on the continuation of, of old growth logging with mm-hmm. the BCNDP. There's some c- concern about fish farms that are still um, 
being dealt with. So some of these people who were quite vocal felt betrayed by the party that they were so uh, voraciously supporting. And I took the brunt of that as an individual over the last two election campaigns. I mean, Judy Feinstein, my uh, chief of staff, would attest to the you know, the personal attacks I had from some of these people who felt that the Green Party's role was to be the um, Homer Simpson's father, shouter at the clouds. You're not going to get elected if you do that. Nothing's going to happen if you do that. So it's important that people shout at the clouds. Uh, but it's also important to recognize that there are others who aren't. And, you, and to build public policy, it requires all stakeholders. Where you get tipping points is when the social movement... Um, you're seeing that now with Black Lives Matter, for example, when the social movement moves beyond the activists mm -hmm. in terms of a multitude of stakeholders all singing from the same song sheet, then governments have a fundamental responsibility to act. And climate change is one of those where, you know, one of the things I did say with the youth is I think what Greta frankly, I said this publicly, she deserves the Nobel Peace Prize for her work in this area. What she was able to do in terms of leading a global movement and bringing global awareness, not just from the activist community, but from, you know, mom and dad with two kids struggling to pay a mortgage and having their kids trying to make all their soccer events on the weekend, right? Just everybody. It's remarkable. That, to me, was a turning point in climate policy. It's, and it was, my work was done. I was a climate scientist. I don't need to. We got clean BC. Mm -hmm. And I felt that, you know, I, I... But do you think the party itself is more defined now than it was when you first joined it? That's the core of the question that I'm asking. Because I think there are a lot of voters that don't know what the BC Greens stand for, except for climate action. Well, I think they, when I was um, leader, I think it was, uh, I, I had developed rather, I know we were polling in 20% range, which is pretty darn good for a Green Party. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that people I was, had quite good name recognition. I know that there was quite a strong approval rating. And I know that you'd get stopped in the street, not just in downtown Victoria, but in Kamloops, in Kelowna, in Prince George, in Vancouver. And people would talk to you about policies that are other than climate. People would mm -hmm. talk about I know that I spent a lot of time working with the, to, to bring the tech sector front center, the innovation center. So I, I have a lot of connections in the tech and innovation communities, a lot of connections in the mining community. Mining is an incredible, has incredible potential in this province. And it, you, we can do that and it doesn't have to be old school mining. Modern means of mining is, is where the opportunity for innovation is. So I think that there had, it had been, it was, I think there was by the polling numbers in the 20% range, a recognition that there was a very real place for that. The mm -hmm. difficulty the Greens face right now is they're in the midst of a leadership race and a vision that the leader of the party is ultimately the spokesperson of the party. It is not, yeah, and that's often people associate the vision of the party through the leader's voice. So they don't have a leader right now. And, and Adam Wilson will not be the leader because he's not eligible as interim leader. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm pretty sure right now people are wondering what direction they're going to take. Let's go back to this leadership race. Despite emphasizing that you didn't want to hinder the independence of the leadership race, you have been quite critical of Sonia first to know, both in terms of what you say is standing up to the BCNDP on LG development and her policy interest in a four-hour work week. Why did you publicly admonish your former colleague who's in this leadership race? 
First of all, um, I criticize policy, not the person. Um, the notion of the four-day work week was something that I believed undermined the, the seven years of, of work that had been done to build the credibility of the Green Party with the business community in this province. Mm -hmm. it, it was, I know where it came from. It was very populous. It came from the New Zealand Prime Minister, who's a remarkable woman, who, who has done remarkable work in terms of the COVID response, who essentially appealed to New Zealand business along the lines of this is, please consider reducing your work week to allow your employees to work a bit less so that they can spend more time in the tourism sector in our province. And the reason was because New Zealand relies so heavily on tourism as a source of revenue. And that obviously with COVID had collapsed. So that was the rationale that when you, when you publicly put that out in a platform, First off, it contravenes the actual process by which the Green Party is supposed to develop policy. Policy in the Green Party flows from the bottom up. It doesn't flow from the top down. So number one, it wasn't there. So that was, that was troubling. But more importantly, it essentially said to the business community, don't take us seriously. And the reason why it says that is the only legislative tool that government has on the 40, on the four day work week would be to change the employment standards act to re to require all business to pay overtime for any hours worked above 32 hours a week instead right. of 40 hours a week. That's the only tool government has. Now, can you imagine in a post COVID recovery, a small business being required to pay overtime for an employee who's working over 32 hours a week. Can you imagine a single parent in Vancouver who's struggling to pay a mortgage now told that you're only going to work 32 hours a week, but you're not getting paid anymore. You just yeah. got ace. So you got to take your second job. I'm not trying to debate the, the merits of a four hour work week. What I'm asking is, you know, you set out to say that, okay, I'm going to be independent of the leadership race. But even if you are criticizing someone's policy ideas or something that they're just throwing out there on Twitter, doesn't that sort of contravene this idea of being independent? Because you are, it looks like you are targeting this person, even if you are just talking about some of their policy ideas. So I am, I am elected as an MLA Mm -hmm. to represent the interests of my constituents. Mm -hmm. My constituents deserve to have a voice in the legislature, and I am reflecting their views through my voice. I can tell you, I heard from a lot of people about this four-day work week, and as an elected MLA representing constituents who voted for me based on the vision that I had brought in my writing, mm -hmm. I had a duty to speak out on this. It's not about criticizing an individual. It's about a duty and a responsibility as an elected MLA to express your views on issues that you believe are important. I, and I, you know, I, I do have, I, I, you know, I, I, I think that that was, that was very poorly thought through policy, that when you hold the balance of responsibility or the balance of power in a minority government, you have a duty and a responsibility to actually, to actually, you know, you, you scare government. If you start talking about four-day work weeks and you're holding balanced power, this is something that government will, like, what, what are you doing? Like, this is, and I, as an independent MLA, felt it was appropriate to point out that I frankly thought this idea was completely kooky. Mm -hmm. and, and it actually undermined all the work in my community that I had done with the business community uh, who, who basically thought, you know, we voted for you because you were business friendly. And now we have a party that's 
making this stuff up on the fly. Uh, also, it was it was most unfortunate. I mean, I, I you know, I, I think she's probably backtracked on that now, and and I think mm-hmm. that's that's a good thing, and that's what the the per- point of this was was to ensure that if you're going to advance public policy, you have to be willing and able to defend it, mm-hmm. and not just run and hide and say this is oh a personal attack. It was not a personal attack. It was a it was a, a ridiculous policy put forward that actually I thought um, should have been done in a manner that reflected membership views, bottom up as opposed to top down. Well, I'm not even accusing you of a personal attack. I'm just saying that you said that you know, you were going to be independent of the leadership race, obviously going at a policy issue from one of the candidates, it it has that optic of you favoring or disfavoring that candidate. And again, on, on the same issue, despite saying that you were going to distance yourself from the race, you joined an advisory council for BC Green leadership candidate Cam Brewer. So isn't that basically an endorsement for Cam Brewer? Uh, not at all. I have been. I've also helped Kim Darwin out. Um, when when I am, I have moved into an independent role in the legislature. I am mm-hmm. going to be returning after my term is done to the University of Victoria's climate scientist. I will advise any party. I advise Stephen Dion. I advise Gordon Campbell. I advise Thomas Mulcair. Mm-hmm. I advise. I advise all parties on Elizabeth May uh, uh, on climate science. That is what my role is as a climate mm-hmm. scientist to do. So when Cam asked me about this, I said, sure, I'll provide advice on climate science to you. I have a pretty good understanding of that. And Kim Darwin, I've provided a lot of advice on energy policy. And okay. she, she doesn't actually have a formal um, advisory committee put in place, but I have had frequent calls with her providing advice on energy policy. I, I, I'm not going to vote in this leadership convention I, I, I you know I think it's I think it's healthy if, yeah. if, 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 if candidates I mean I, I led the party for five years I was an MLA for seven I took the party from like an also ran to 17% of the popular vote holding the balance of power in a minority government I think I got a bit of you know creds in terms of our oh advice. for sure and you have you have the right even to support any candidate you want I guess that's what I was trying to find out so you, you're saying that your advice is more policy related and technical and scientific as opposed to political advice. Correct. I'm not. I'm not going to be um, telling people, "Oh, here's a public endorsement of of you know Sonia Firstenau or Cam Brew or Kim Darman." No, it's mm-hmm. not my, that that would be inappropriate. I will say though that if they want advice on climate science, I'm happy to provide them. Sure. I'm happy to provide Sonia Firstenau advice on you know the housing policy, which is one what the file that I had. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I just if you ask, I'll provide advice, and I will do that in to any party. I still meet um, with the premier and his his uh, and provide advice to government on this, and I provide opinion. In fact, I had a call yesterday with um, uh, somebody in the premier's office about um, advice on COVID response and innovation. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, this is what my role is as an independent MLA, and and that's I will continue to do that role. And and uh, and and you know, I, and as I'm elected right now, I believe I, I have a duty and responsibility to reflect the views of my constituents, who I'm very proud to represent, and frankly, I think are examples to all and how as a community you should respond to the to the COVID. I mean, it's just remarkable what Oak Bay Gordon Head has done. Just like I was at Oak Bay bikes. Today. Uh, it's a local bike store. Oh, just remarkable what they've done. You, they, everybody's wearing visors. You have to stand out, wash your hands. You have social. It's just it's just remarkable what this community has done. And uh, I'm proud of it. And, I, and, and they deserve to have someone speak up for them. And that's why it'll be a really interesting race when the next election comes in. One thing that came up in 2017 
was the lack of diversity within the BC Green Party. Less than a third of the candidates were women. 90% of candidates were white. Why the clear discrepancy between the BC Greens and the other two major parties? Is that a failure of the BC Greens to attract a diversity of candidates and supporters? No. Uh, look at the party that, look at who got elected. We had the most diverse part, uh, party of all three. We had one Indigenous fellow, we had one woman, and one tall white old guy, right? So we had three, we had a very diverse representation. I mean, it's a small sample size, but sure. Well, well exactly, but my point exactly. Now go and look at the other parties, right? Go and look at who actually gets elected. You know, you'll find that, I mean, if this is why some of the analysis has been quite simplistic, you'll find that for, uh, the, the question is, who is running in safe seats or in seats that are winnable? That is the more reasonable question to ask. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I will say that other parties sometimes have less diversity. And I spend a lot of time, and I know my two colleagues spent a lot of time, building the diversity of our, of, of our, of our membership. And, and I think it did increase quite dramatically. And uh, I, I think, you know, it's also... It's also Green parties, you know, let's suppose uh, if you're in, um, it, it's harder to get your message across uh, sometimes when you're a new party as well. Um, and so, so it takes time and it takes time to build and grow. And that's what it took some time to do that. I would say we're as diverse, if not more diverse now than any other party. We have a, the BC Greens had a very close relationship and working relationship with indigenous communities across the province. Uh, we had a numerous indigenous uh, folk run with our party or support us. Um, we have, uh, you know, anyway, I, I, I just like to, to think that we treat all people equally. Uh, and when you're a, a, a starting party, it is, I'll tell you, it was tough work getting 85 candidates. Mm -hmm. Really tough work, 85 candidates in an election when, you know, I, I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours flying across the province, meeting with potential candidates. And mm -hmm. you can bet my bottom dollar I was meeting with diverse candidates. Yeah. But it was not easy to because I knew, I can't, I'm, I can't look them in the face and say, you're going to win your riding. Like, let's suppose we had a candidate from um, Richmond South, okay? Uh, or or, or I, I can't look at the candidate we're running in Richmond South, a strong, strong liberal uh, stronghold, and say, you're going to win this riding. So people, it, it's, you have to, it, it's difficult. It requires a lot of time and investment. And ultimately, by the end, at the end of the day, you are who steps up to the plate and represents and the electorate gets to determine who they want to represent. I would suggest now that that whole issue is moot. Uh, I don't see it as an issue uh, moving forward. You were critical of the NDP's equity policy in 2017, though. Are, are you still critical of it? Yes, I believe they, um, many of their own members are critical of it. I mean, their policy led to, as many would say, the election of Sonia First Now, I, I wasn't critical, actually. I was quite pleased. The election of <laughs> Sonia First Now in Couch and Valley, because what happened there was the, the president of their constituency associate, the NDP, uh, wanted to run uh, for the NDP in that riding, but was ineligible because he was a, a white male. And the NDP mm -hmm. had a policy that if a white male steps down, it has to be someone from other groups 
who stepped in. But it started to get absurd where people were declaring themselves as having a hearing impediment or as having, you know, being bisexual or something. Like this is this is the kind of stuff that nobody needs to know if you're bisexual. It's your business, it's not my business. Mm-hmm. Nobody needs to know if you have a hearing impediment or not. That's just it's your business, not my business. And so it got to a uh, it got to a ridiculous level, and this particular person in Cowichan ended up running as an independent, helping Sonia out. The NDP was in complete chaos in that riding during that uh, election, and, and 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 as a direct consequence of their policy, I, I would I would hope that in 2020 we've moved beyond this notion that somehow um, we have to do things like that because it is a form of discrimination. It's a different form of discrimination. I, I don't think, you know, two wrongs make a right. I think that what we have to deal with is deal with the problem at hand. And the problem, in, and that is why, you know, I, I, I recruited, it's harder to recruit, I mean, there's research on this too. It's harder to recruit women than it is to recruit men. I spent a ton of time focused on trying to recruit women to run because mm-hmm. <clears throat> I know some you don't just ask once. Like Sonia, I must have asked her about six times. <laughs> um, Nina Campbell, I must have asked her a bunch of times. And these are outstanding candidates, right? Yanina yeah. was dep- deputy leader. She's now the executive director of the BCP, just in a superb candidate. She's a former chair of the Richmond School Board. Uh, I spent so much time um, uh, trying to uh, get women leaders to run because I think it's important. Mm-hmm. I did the same with the, the Asian community as well as uh, um, uh, we, uh, it was, it was, it's, it, it's tough and getting to yes. Uh, oh my goodness. I'm using a Christy Clark quote there. <coughs> Sorry. Get, getting someone, <laughs> I do apologize. Getting someone to finally agree to run is, is a very time consuming process. And as the election gets closer and closer and closer, you get, you, you need to get more and more people filled. It's just, you, you do what you can and you put the slate out that you're able to get. And I, can, mm-hmm. I, I could not have done any more than I did in 2017. I want to get into your legacy as the BC Greens leader. From being the very first BC Green elected to the BC legislature in 2013 to tripling the seat count and doubling the popular vote in 2017, Not to mention, of course, the confidence and supply agreement to create an NDP minority government after that 2017 election. You are clearly the most consequential BC Green in history so far. So so I was the most what? BC Green, sorry? Consequential. Oh, oh, I thought, okay, yeah, yeah. What did you think I said? I thought you said controversial. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I had a hearing, maybe it's my hearing impediment as a result from the (laughs) vestibular neuritis. I mean, maybe that too. No, just kidding. (laughs) I I, I might be eligible for a, so no, just kidding. What do you think or hope your legacy will be in BC politics? I hope that people remember that I, I consider myself a reluctant politician. Mm-hmm. I'm more, much more comfortable at the lab bench than I am in the, in the, you know, standing in front of a bunch of people saying, rah, 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 you know, vote for me. I, I'm not good at that. I'm a terrible person in terms of asking people to donate. I, I just hate it. Like, can you give me some money? I, I, I don't like to tell people what to do. Okay. I, like to, I like to work in a style whereby it's a trust management style, whereby there's a job to be done. I trust you to do your job. If you have a problem, come and see me. I, 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 I was able to get three, pri- quite a few private members bills, but three formally were my private members bills as opposed to government reintroducing them. Mm-hmm. Those are the first three in BC history. The mm-hmm. benefit company legislation 
which is I very proud of. This is legislation that enables the formation of a new corporate entity in the province of British Columbia. These are called benefit companies. These allow companies to articulate in their actual uh, articles, um, triple bottom line kind of um, uh, 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 constitution or uh, requirements uh, with third party verification reporting. Hmm. This is this is the that was the very first private members bill ever in British Columbia that was published as an opposition MLA. I had a second private members bill pub- published uh, pub, uh, that appeared that now um, allows. Let's suppose your your te- your roommate is harassing you, and you're on the lease with the roommate. You c- you can't legally break that lease without being liable for it. Right now, now you can. That that bill allowed uh, allowed for domestic violence, not just in the case of family domestic violence, but also in the case of um, roommate to roommate or landlord to roommate violence. Allow for the breaking of leases. That mm-hmm. And perhaps most significant to me because of my family heritage is now the fourth Saturday of every November will be memorialized in British Columbia as Holiday Memorial Day. So the Ukrainian community of which I'm a part Mm -hmm. will know that Holiday Memorial Day is always by law in British Columbia remembered along the lines with Terry Fox Day and Douglas Day Mm -hmm. and... uh, uh, Holocaust Memorial Day in British Columbia. So those, there's also many other bills like the Sexual Violence and Policy Misconduct Bill that for university campuses and post-secondary campuses that I had with the Liberals. There was a bunch of stuff I got done with Liberal government. Uh, for example, I mean, I don't know whether people remember this, but it used to be in, in British Columbia that if you were a woman, you could be required uh, to wear high heels in your workforce by your employer. I mean, how outrageous hmm. is that in 2020? An yeah. employer now in BC cannot require a woman to wear high heels. So no restaurant can say to a woman working in the restaurant, you must wear high heels if you want to work in this restaurant. And hmm. there, are, there, there are lots of, it's a safety issue, right? I mean, you're walking in an oily restaurant. That is a change that I was able to facilitate. There's many, many things. And I hope in the, that people will know, looking back and say, there's a guy who stepped out of science and did what he could for broader society, society stepped back in, got a lot of stuff done, put climate back on the agenda, and on we go. You ran on a platform to stop Site C and the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion. Both of those, of course, are going through. Considering uh, the... Wait, don't, well, let's, oh, wait. Well, I was just going to ask you, when it comes to those two issues, are those the two biggest failures of the BC Greens this term? So for me, Site C, uh, you know, when I, 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 I'm going to go back historically on Site C. Back in, I think it was when Gordon Campbell was uh, Premier, Site C Dam went to phase, uh, phase three, I think, of the environmental assessment process. I was up there with Gordon Campbell and, um, because it was a, a source of clean energy. Uh, at the mm-hmm. time, I was, you know, sitting in my lab bench as a scientist. I didn't, of course, appreciate, not because I, I it's just I wasn't aware, and awareness is really important, of the, the treaty issues that were at stake up in the region. I wasn't aware of that. And, and so these are issues that I've become more aware of. But, but what has happened most importantly, and why, if you go back to 2013, one of the very first post blog posts I wrote was about how it made no fiscal sense to continue to proceed with Site C. I supported Site C when it started its fiscal environmental review. I switched that when the price of wind and solar plummeted 
to mm-hmm. the floor, and the price of Site C continued to skyrocket. And what we found at the time is what I also realized, of course, is there were some very significant Indigenous concerns uh, with respect to treaty violations, treaty rights. Uh, and it made no sense to, to, this is old technology, and we had existing debt. It made no sense to do this. Mm-hmm. So that, that, in my view, Site C is a, is a fiscal nightmare that is going to plague this government, the past government, and future governments. It should never have been started. It, who knows if it'll ever get completed. There are sunk costs, but at some time you need to stop throwing good money after bad. We mm-hmm. don't know the, geo, you know, the geo, uh, technical stability issues are still quite profound. So, so I, I mean, ultimately it's going to produce clean power if it ever gets built. It's just going to be super expensive, and it's... Uh, in my view, not the smartest thing that they could have done. However, I think, you know, BC Hydro's view would probably be, oh, ooh, look, if we have another big storage tank, we can we can buy and trade more um, electricity on the spot market using PowerX, our trading arm, and make a mm-hmm. ton of money by buying low, selling high of electricity to, to stabilize the largely subsidized uh, U.S. solar uh, peak solar that's coming in the daytime. And that's what BC Hydro does right now through PowerX. They make a ton mm-hmm. of money. Because what happens is California, for example, produces a ton of solar power at peak day when they don't need it. BC Hydro says, okay, you know what? We'll buy that next for, for you can get negative at times. <laughs> we'll buy it cheap and we'll sell you back hydropower at night when there's no sun shining. So they can make money on the arbitrage there. Right. So per- perhaps down the road they will, but who knows? I'll believe Trans Mountain when I see it. The, the market for oil, I mean, look, ExxonMobil just got taken off the Dow Jones index. Oil is finished. It's absolutely finished. It will always be around for all these other remarkable uses like plastics and petrochemicals and stuff like that. But in terms of burning it for transportation, it's finished. I mean, I ha- I don't, I- I'm a carbon neutral household. I got two cars. Like A lot of people have two cars um, who are you know, living not so much downtown Vancouver. But, mm-hmm. And both of them are electric. My Hyundai Kona gets 520 kilometer range. I mean, 520 kilometers. I, I I have spent nothing on it yeah. in a year and a half, and I'm saving 200 bucks a month. No oil and filters, no parts, there's no oil and filter. The, the oil's dead. I, this mysterious, um, uh, this so-called, uh, the reason why Trans Mountain was initially going to be built was to provide heavy fuel to the California refineries. That was the business case for it. The price of oil in the actual uh, process was estimated to be above 100 barrels a ton. Sure. Uh, it's nowhere near that. And so I, I, don't, I don't believe it'll ever get built. I mean, if, if there was a lot of demand for Alberta crude, why aren't we full using the existing capacity to do it? Because they're not. The, the amount of tankers has plummeted out of Vancouver to Asia in recent history. And, mm-hmm. and we have an existing line. It's not because, because the market's drying up. And frankly, with the advent of shale um, exploration, everybody in the world can get shale oil, particularly the bacon shale, back in shale fields in the U.S., which would feed any California market. At a much cheaper price than, say, upgrading the, uh, the high sulfur-laden. Oh, there's another reason. Um, the shipping industry is moving away from high sulfur-laden fuels, and a lot of the fuel coming out of the Alberta oil sands is very sulfur-laden. That's so, right, yeah. So, so, so there's so many reasons why. It's like LNG Canada. I don't believe that'll ever get built either. I, I don't believe it'll ever get built in Kitimat. They're gonna, I mean, a billion dollar here, a billion dollar year for a multinational like Shell is like kicking the rubber on the tires of a, of a car, second-hand car in the a used car lot. 
it's they they, they invest that it's hedged here hedged there I, I don't believe it'll ever get built and because there's no market for that like what are you going to do uh produce it for $10 a barrel, uh, $10 a, a per million BTU out of BC and get it to Asia and sell it for a buck. That's not a real smart thing to do. So, so I don't believe that's going to ever happen either. The fossil fuel industry is on its way out. Um, so you think that you think that these are going to be wins for the BC greens by default effectively? Well, there's a reason why I stopped. Like I didn't protest. I never went and protested as trans mountain because yeah. as soon as, uh, you know, as soon as Kinder Morgan bailed, they bailed. They didn't bail because of they bailed because it was the business case had fallen through the floor. Yeah. And if you, you don't have to believe me, go and read their submission to the National Energy Board and to what their business case was. I was an intervener there, read all of it, a 10,000 page of this stuff, submitted hundreds of questions. And, and, and my whole team in the legislature, as well as the, uh, as well as the uh, constituent office, were working on various aspects. The constituent was more on the you know, constituency concerns with... Um, with the, the Coast Oak Bay Gordon Head riding and the ledge office with more of the broader policy concern. So they, they uh, you know, the, the business case falls through the floor and then Trudeau stepped up and bought it. Like what a, what a ridiculous thing to do. Like what a ridiculous thing to do. So he's bought a red herring. And this was, this was done for purely cynical political reasons to try to, you know, Rachel Notley was pushing for it. He wanted Rachel Notley to win, not Jason Kenney to win. Well, guess what? You got Jason Kenney anyway, and you have a red, you have a lemon of a pipeline that, likely will never actually get built. But anyway, it might get built for hydrogen. I mean, who knows? We might be shipping hydrogen to uh, Vancouver for a hydrogen economy, but, but mm-hmm. not for, not for a, crude, a heavy crude. If an election were called immediately, what letter grades would you assign to the BCNDP government? And I want to separate this. I want to give them a letter grade pre-pandemic and then give them a letter grade during the pandemic so far. I would give the BCNDP government an A grade. Um, for both? For both, I think uh, I would think uh, early pandemic A plus, um, and back to an A now. I think there's been I think uh, uh, there's a little bit um, you know, the school rec- uh, opening is a little bit troubling. I think they've fallen a bit on that. Uh, they they're listening to the public health officer, which is great. But the public health officer is you know want to make evidence based decision making, of course. But there's also other issues at stake right like the behavior of children in a school setting is not Mm -hmm. something that is entirely predictable Um, for example i suspect people in the uh you know if you have let's suppose you have three children or two children in the same school a kindergarten child and a grade five child well i can tell you right now that you may hope and hope that you're going to have your class bubbles but when you have older brother or older sister in the same school and you know you see them you're going to run over and say hi and you're going to say hi to their friends and <laughs> yeah. it just it doesn't work the way the theoretical construct is going to be so i think there's some issues there so i'd say an a right now an a plus in say april and an a for the previous three years and i think that you know and, and that's credit to john horgan and his um, well credit to i mean the 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 ministers that I worked mostly with were, I mean, we have a remarkable finance minister, Carol James, what mm-hmm. an amazing politician. Uh, she did a superb job as finance minister, probably, you know, one of the best BC has ever had. Uh, you know, David Eby as attorney general, what an outstanding attorney general. And George mm-hmm. Heyman as environment minister, an outstanding environment minister. Our premier, like, and this is the biggest eye opener for me. John and I did, so I shouldn't call him John on the on your radio, but the premier and I, <laughs> we, I think if you'd asked us before the election, 
what the odds of us working together would be, it would be pretty close to zero. And I think both of us would be willing to stake rather large amounts of money on that. Um, and I think he would say the same as I do. I thought he was someone that he's not. And I think he thought I was someone that I was not. And part of that is the nature of politics, right? Mm -hmm. What I realized is the premier is he's a, he's a regular person. He's a real human being. What you see is what you get. There's no fake John Horgan. There's the real John Horgan. And that is the only John Horgan. Mm -hmm. And that is what I really like about him because I feel, I like to think of myself as the same way as what you see is what you get. I'm not going to pretend to be someone just because you want me to be that person. I'm going to be who I am all the time. And I'm not going to apologize for that. It is who I am. I will try to be a good person, uh, but that is who I am. And he's the same. And so mm -hmm. we would disagree on issues, but ultimately we knew where each other stood. And the reason why we did is because there was no, there was no kind of games. It was a straight goods, you know, if, with the labor policy. I said, John, I can't support, I cannot support you with uh, eliminating the secret ballot. It's just something that I can't support. He said, well, mm -hmm. you've got to support these workers. I said, look, even your own committee didn't do it. And then I proposed a compromise. I said, you know what, John, I actually could see, for example, in the construction sector, treating them separately as they do in Ontario, because the constructions, the difference between, say, a construction industry and, say, a, you know, an office tower is in an office tower, you go to the same place all day, all along. If you want to certify a union, you know everyone's going to be there. The problem on construction sites is that, you know, you can actually start to move construction site to construction site, people get fired, moved, etc more complex. And so Ontario treats, in terms of the certification process, construction workers different from um, office workers. Now, the BC Federation of Labour didn't want the NDP to do that. Well, that's the BC Federation of Labour's problem, because I, I'm saying this now publicly, I would have supported, and in fact, I put on the table the notion where construction workers, the construction industry, was treated differently from office workers, uh, because of the nature of the work, the transient nature of the work, uh, to model what they do in Ontario. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, there were, it, we couldn't come to an agreement, but we ended up brokering another deal, which everybody supported. So, so but we, you know, I, I, I could go for a beer with John Horgan, and we could, we could laugh about our disagreements and rejoice about our successes. And there have been a lot of both, but it was never, it was, it was always because he, you know, I, 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 I mean, I'm, I honestly think, I, I hope he's, if there is an election, I hope he is Premier again. Yeah. I think British Columbia has been served very well by the Premier. And, and he's, he's, he's had to handle some very difficult issues, in particular, um, some, the disappointment that some in the more activist community had with his actions on things like Site C and, and others. And, but, you know, I, uh, hats off to him. I find that really refreshing. I mean, I think you're being very honest and authentic, and, and I appreciate that. But is it weird for you to give such a glowing review to the premier of another party? Because why would I want to vote BC Greens when you, as the previous leader, just told me how great the NDP were? No, I said how great John Horgan was. Uh, <laughs> well, you I, gave the government an A, right? And, right. And, well, I, I would also, like, I have always, I have always believed, and, and my riding is, reflects that, is you should vote for the individual in your riding who's representing you. I've always believed that. I probably mm -hmm. voted for every political party um, <laughs> and under the, uh, well, 
I'd never voted for a Harper conservative, but but I, I, I you know, I, 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 and I look at Obey Gordon Head, and I look at the track record of this writing. I go back to when I was in high school in the 1970s. Uh, Scott Wallace, who I went to school with his daughter, actually, the same grade, it was remarkable. He, he was uh, the only BC conservative in the legislature. He was, but he was, he was highly regarded in writing, it, uh, deep roots in the community, worked his butt off, represented his constituents well, people voted for him. And so mm-hmm. I suspect in the, in the upcoming election, whenever it happens, it will be the winner of Ope Gordon Head will be the person who is the strongest candidate, not mm-hmm. the party. It could be NDP, it could be Liberal, or it could be Green. Well, we know who the Liberal is. Ironically, I went to high school with her too. <laughs> <laughs> Roxanne Helm, she's a Liberal candidate. Uh, we were friends in high school, right? So um, she's a strong candidate. Will she mm-hmm. win? I don't know. I don't know who the Green candidate will be, and I don't know who the NDP candidate will be. So, so, so... We'll see. And, uh, but ultimately, I think British Columbia would benefit from having um, Mr. Horgan as premier. He's clearly indicated to me he cares deeply, profoundly about people. Um, and to me, it's sincere. I, 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 um, I, 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 I was, you know, I, I was never, I was one who also defended Christy Clark. I mean, people mm-hmm. were going after her. And you can go back when she was receiving a stipend as leader of the Liberal Party. And it was the, the thing to do was to bash Christy Clark about receiving a stipend as well as getting the premier salary. Well, I stood up and said, okay, there's nothing wrong with that. And, 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 and because the rules didn't say you couldn't. And, and I had chosen not to receive the stipend, even though I was the leader of a party. And I didn't get that that leader because we weren't recognized party in the office. Sure. But I understood why she did that because it yeah. was allowable and the workload she was under. I had I did not falter for that. I defended her. So I so I, I would I, I believe that most people in politics go in for the right reasons. Sometimes people are there too long, uh, but sometimes, um, you know, you just gotta stop hating people for just who they are. Stop getting personal. Recognize that policy is what we care about and policy is what we should focus on and there's good people in all parties uh, you know I'll, well, I'll give you a counter example an example like I like Dan Davies and mm-hmm. in, in Peace River North I think he's a teacher there he's a lovely guy I think he's a great person I'd probably vote for Dan Davies if I was in Peace River North and, <laughs> and he's with the BC Liberals you yeah. know I, I, I if I was in I, I, I would I would vote I don't know who the green candidate is or not I just I always have voted for the person even, mm-hmm. even as a member of the BC Greens, I would vote for the person. Um, well, I voted for myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that was the first time I'd ever voted uh, BC Green. <laughs> <laughs> no, to be honest, I, I share that sentiment as well. I'm, I'm less ideological. I'm more about the person who's going to work hard for me. Obviously, I'm not a politician, so it's, I don't have any brand or party loyalty to say you have to vote for this person or that person. But I think a lot of people do see it on a, on a personality basis. We have to wrap up here, but I have to ask you, with 2020 hindsight, pun intended, what would you have told yourself in 2012? Good grief, Andrew. Do you know what you're getting yourself into? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I say that, I mean, I, I had vision of getting climate policy back on the, the agenda. Yeah. I didn't realize that it was going to come through with three people holding the balance of power in a minority government where only one of the three people had any political experience in the legislature and where um, there were some very controversial issues. Uh, you know, you saw the, 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 the 
removal of the clerk and the sergeant in arms, and that is no right. That, that's for sure because we haven't heard the end of that. We had uh, uh, you know speculation tax. We had labor policy. We had climate. It was. I mean, I I have never worked so hard in my life, and I I. I guess it's extraordinarily rewarding looking back, but it's taken a toll on my health. Yeah. And I and I I don't regret it, but I wouldn't do it again. And uh, you know, it would be if I were to do it again, it would be awfully nice to sit in the back bench of a party of forty something MLAs and enjoy the gig as opposed to being <laughs> the spokesperson. Like I, I, I was essentially on when I first got like I was on the finance committee because my colleague Adam Olson had young children. I didn't feel he should. Uh, he, 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 it was tough. He just had to learn what it meant to be an MLA. And so I was a leader of a party serving on the finance committee. Like it's, you're flying all over the place. It was ridiculous workload. Mm-hmm. And you know all the spec tax, the climate policy. It was outrageous workload. And um, I'm in a very good place right now because it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to um, going back and moving into an advisory role moving forward, and that's what I think leaders do. And I, I look at mm-hmm. people like Tom Mulcair. I, I thought he was a very strong leader. I, I like the way he's gone back into more of an advisory role. He's also a university-based guy. I like Mike Harcourt. Uh, he's. I look on, on his leadership. I, I looked at. Um, people like that as as role models as to the type of people that person I would want to be moving forward is somebody who uh, or you know uh, Jean Chrétien or or uh, who can still provide advice but is not front and center in the camera I don't want to mm-hmm. be that guy who's on the tv screen every freaking news style, having Keith Baldwin quiz me on the left and then Vaughn Palmer quiz me on the right I'm done with that right so <laughs> As a climate scientist and a legislature, do you worry that COVID-19 and just the focus on the economic recovery from this pandemic will overshadow the importance of climate change policy? No, uh, it's exactly the opposite. Uh, The single biggest reduction of uh, annual reduction in greenhouse gas emissions has come because of the economic slowdown or the basically the shutdown of COVID. So there's been mm-hmm. a very large decrease. But people also, this was a big global wake-up call. I mean, it's it's very tragic how it's hurt so many people, but it could be a lot worse. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, we have 180,000 people die in the U.S. and we're still beginning down there. It could be a lot worse. But what I look at what BC, and I look at the conversations I've had with the BC government, um, there's a recognition that moving forward, we have to do things differently. Mm-hmm. I think Gret- Greta Thunberg, was remarkable in bringing awareness in that in that in that way, and it's not only British Columbia; it's Europe, it's Asia, it's jurisdictions all over the world recognizing that moving forward, technology, innovation, creativity—that's the future. You know, universities too. We're uh, at, at the University of Victoria. The whole fall session is going to be virtual, pretty much. Yeah, and then you realize, you know what? I can do a virtual course. I've talked to some of my colleagues and because they did it uh, at the end of last year and it's really good. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so you start to see things differently. I mean, I know, for example, that um, going to the, the way the grocery stores, I don't know, but I can speak to a big Gordon head, the way our local community stores have, have really sorted themselves. I feel very comfortable going into my grocery stores. I know that they're using technology better. There's safety precautions in place. I know that, that, that this is actually innovate. You get spurs in economic activity when you start to recognize that challenges should be viewed as opportunities for innovation and creativity. So I see this moving forward as 
a turning point in human history. Um, you see that, you know, with the Exxon Mobil being removed from the Dow earlier this week um, mm. or, or uh, last week, depending on when your show airs. And <laughs> last week. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Last week. Yeah. So, <laughs> and last week. And, uh, and so, um, you know, this is, this is the, the turning point. We, we have hit, uh, you look at electric vehicle sales in British Columbia. You know, we had 15% yeah. of, of uh, uh, new car sales in the first quarter were, Amer- were electric vehicles. And, and you can talk to anyone owns one they're never going to go back why would mm-hmm. you so it's tough if you live in an apartment complex i get it if there's no charging but all you need is a 120 volt charger mm-hmm. most people that's all they would ever need is a plug because uh, you know you're not going to drive more than 100 kilometers a day most people and if you need a bigger one okay i have a 240 volt charger at my house and and, and so the, the the future's there it's right here upon us now and that's exciting yeah Dr. Weaver, I just want to thank you for your service in the BC legislature. You made history in a lot of ways, and the more elected officials I talk to, the more appreciative I am of the sacrifice and the service that is required to be in that role. Certainly, your legacy will resonate in BC politics. This is your opportunity for a call to action. Where do you want listeners to go? What do you want them to do? How do you want them to follow you? You can even plug Cam Brewer if you want. Oh, I would say be good, be kind, be safe. Right now, uh, I mean, look, uh, we, are a, we are a community uh, right now in the short term. You know, I, I like to use the phrase, my mask protects me. Sorry, my mask protects you. Your mask protects me. I -hmm. think people need to start thinking about the collective rather than me. People start, you know, as we move forward, not only about the present situation, which is COVID, but also on issues like climate change. When our behavior affects others, we need to reflect upon our behavior and how it reflects others when we do it. Because, uh, you know, a purely libertarian society is a society that's destined for failure. And there's Mm -hmm. lots of examples in human history. Uh, I don't have to cite them all to you. So be good, be kind, be safe. And look out for others. Dr. Weaver, thank you so much for your time. Best of health and well wishes to you and your family. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. People, what a show! He's the highly decorated member of the Legislative Assembly for Oak Bay Gordon Head since 2013, and he was the influential leader of the Green Party of British Columbia. He is Dr. Andrew Weaver, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.